0: Well, good morning once again. Uh, so we're going to still be in First Peter, so we'll be in First Peter chapter two, and you can go ahead and turn there. We'll read from there in just a moment. Um, but I wanted to start out this morning uh, to kind of ask the question: You don't need to raise your hands, but who has ever been rejected from something? I think all of us have at some point, whether. There's a job application, you ask someone out on a date when you're younger, uh, even making friends. Uh, at any point, sometimes people are like, they just don't want to be your friend. Uh, or even that, that cliche kind of sports story where uh, two captains are picking a team for dodgeball or basketball or something and you're left till you last. And maybe even like the, at that point, they're like, oh, the teams are even, you can't play. Um, that that feeling of rejection, it's kind of a universal human experience that we all experience at some point. Even, even Jesus experienced rejection. Um, he came down as the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, at, in the form of a servant. And yet, he was rejected by the world. Um, and ultimately, we... Our sin, we, we killed him. And the audience of First Peter, they're, they're experienced that rejection. And wherever they're living in their communities, they're feeling like exiles. That the community isn't looking at them as one of them, but instead as strangers. As peculiar people that are different from them. And are even ostracizing them, or mocking them, or even putting them in prison. And so that's, that's the context that our passage today that Peter is writing to. Uh, so we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood God, we thank you for these, these great truths here uh, in your word of who you are, of how you, how you think of believers in Christ, how you think of your children. God, we ask that, that those truths would shape us into, into more and more, into the image of your Son, into the people that you would have us be, of the men and women of God here on earth, as, as foreigners and exiles, but as ambassadors for you, as, as priests here on earth. So God, we ask as, as we read and talk about this, that it wouldn't just, your word wouldn't be null and void, but it would give forth fruit in our hearts and our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, as a recap, as we've been going through First Peter um, Where we've been so far, there's kind of two sections. Peter starts off with, this is who you are. You are chosen in Christ. You are sanctified by the Spirit. You're now in the new covenant of Christ. And then he goes on to say, this is what you guys need to do. This is the race that is set before us. That as we're running, we're looking to the grace that's ahead. And each step is being holy and loving one another. And what sustains us is, is God himself. He's the sustainer and garter of our faith, and so to crave him, crave his presence. And now today, today's passage, Peter is kind of summarizing, wrapping all of that back up, and it's what everything has come before is now building to these great truths, these great words of how God thinks of us and how he would have us live. And then the, the rest of this letter, uh, Peter then goes on and says, so what? Uh, therefore, this is how you guys should apply these truths that we're reading to your daily life as you relate to unbelievers, as you relate to governing authorities, as you relate to you, uh, your boss and coworkers, as you relate to if, if you're married to your spouse and your children. And ultimately, it kind of ends with even how, how we persevere through suffering, how we handle suffering, what we look to as we suffer. And so here, like, there's these great truths of who Christians are, who believers are, who, who the church is that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a spiritual house, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and a few other things as well. But, but before we dig into those truths, we have to know why, why that's the case. And to understand that, we need to talk about our union with Christ. And so we start off with talking about what, what the scripture says Christ is here. So when we look at what the verses here say about Jesus, it starts off with saying he's rejected by men. That God the Son, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the messianic king that's been foretold uh, for centuries and millennia, that Israel is waiting for it to save them out of their bondage. That this king, he comes, God himself comes to be God with us in the form of a man. That he's fully man and fully God. And as he comes, he's rejected. Uh, John chapter 1 says that he comes to his own and his own did not receive him. Uh, instead, we put him on a cross. We murder him. We torture him. We mock him. We beat him. And we betray him. That, that's who Jesus is in the sight of the world. Is He's someone not worthy to be followed, to follow Instead, he's someone that we reject. But but here then, in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. That he's he's God's own son. That uh, because he's God's son, that he's precious to God the Father. Um, That even though the world may reject him, his identity isn't in what others think of him. It's in who the Father says he is. And so... He's valuable. Uh, he's the son of God. He's his own son. And even though he's so valuable, God gives him up to bring us to him uh, so that we ourselves can be built up in him. And so Peter then goes on and says that Jesus is a cornerstone. Um, or when we think of if we're building a new building whether the skyscraper or house, Jesus is the first stone that's laid down. He's the foundation that everything else is built on top of him, and that it's relating to a spiritual house. That there's kind of this double metaphor here, that of both a temple and the household of God. That Jesus is the foundation of the temple. The temple in scriptures. Where God would come down to be with men and women of God, where he'd accept their sacrifices and offerings, and that's where his presence was. That's where he was with his people. Uh, So it started off with the tabernacle in the wilderness, where as they're wandering through the wilderness, rescued out of Egypt, going towards a home that they've never seen, that they're just trusting God for, God is leading them in the form of a cloud by day and a fire by night. And then when they'd stop, they'd rebuild the tabernacle, this big tent, and God's presence would rest on that and would be with them. And then when they finally, Joshua leads them into the land and they eventually take it over. And then eventually, a king comes along and builds him a house because They think that they're finally there. They're finally at the place they've been looking for. And so they build a temple. And now God's presence, his name is there in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the temple is kind of this picture of where God's people come to meet with God, to worship him, to praise him, to offer sacrifices. Um, But also the spiritual house has this metaphor of the household of God, that, that Jesus is firstborn, that he's the firstborn of many sons, that, that he's the oldest, uh, that he's God the son, but now he, he calls people to him to be his brothers and sisters, uh, but, but he's, he's the firstborn, he's the heir, and yet we're heirs with him, we're united with him. And Peter lays out, there's two responses to this cornerstone. Either we come to him, and if we come to him, it says there's will no longer or ever be put to shame, and there's honor. Or there's those that reject him, that reject the word, that reject the cornerstone, and he becomes a stone of stumbling and of offense, and they stumble, and they fall. And in fact, if you turn to Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quotes the same verse as he's reasoning with the Pharisees and scribes. In Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus says to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So there's two responses to Jesus. We can either come to him, follow him, see him as our king, Or we can reject him, say he's not worthy to be followed, he's not worthy to lead us. Instead, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make myself the leader of my own life. I'm going to follow my own way. And Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. And so there's two ways, following the king leading to life, or following our own way leading to death. And so that's kind of, as we're reading, that's the first thing we need to think about is are we following after him? Are we choosing life or are we choosing death? Are we choosing to follow him, to worship him, to have him as our king? Or are we just wanting to please our own desires and follow after our own hearts? And so there's, there's consequences and there's no in-between. It's either one or the other. And if we kind of go back to that that sports analogy of picking teams, that that Jesus is the one that's that's not picked by the world. Instead, they're picking each other, picking whoever seems strong or wise in their own eyes to lead them, or even themselves. Whereas Jesus he's looking on them and he's he's seeing them as they are as as weak, as proud, as sinful, and yet he, he calls a people to himself. He, he starts going into the crowd, calling people to be on his team. And if we're on his team, then when he wins the game, when he's victorious, we win and are victorious with him. Um, that who he is then tells us who we are. That if, if we're on his team and then the characteristics about him also describe us. And so when we talk about the union with Christ, it's talking about those kinds of things, that that even though he's rejected by the world, that he's chosen and precious in God's eyes. So if we're united with him through faith, then in the eyes of God we're chosen and precious. Um, That even if the world rejects us, turns away from us, that... That doesn't say anything about us. It doesn't take away from our own identity because our identity is found in who Christ is. Um, in fact, as we, if we choose to follow him, that means, that means he, he called us to himself and that he, he took our sins with him upon the cross and now he gives us that righteousness. And that's why God sees us as chosen and precious in his eyes. And so as we start going through all these different words and descriptions about who believers are in Christ. Like remember, it's all because of what He's done. Um, so the first thing we're going to look at is, in verse four and five, it talks about us being living stones. So Jesus is the living stone, the, the cornerstone, and yet when, when we come to him, we ourselves become like him, are also living stones and being built up on top of him. That if he's the foundation of the temple, then we too become the temple. We become the dwelling place of God. In fact, we we see this kind of in its ultimate fulfillment at the end of Revelation, um, when John has this vision of the city of God And it comes down from heaven, this new Jerusalem, and it's it's huge. It's miles and miles wide, miles and miles long, miles and miles tall. But but it's it's cubic, Um, kind of playing off the imagery of the holy of holies of the temple. That that where God dwelt in the temple, the holy of holies, is is now this this entire city. And the angel tells John that this is the bride of Christ. That this is the people of God. That that it's ultimately what we're going towards is God dwelling with his people, that we are his holy of holies. And so then he looks in the city and there is no actual physical temple because God's dwelling place is with man. And also part of being this living stone, we're being built up into the household of God. And so now we're adopted into a new family. That God becomes our father. Uh, Going back to John chapter 1. So, Jesus comes to his own, and his own do not receive him. But to everyone who does receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. That those that receive Christ, those that follow after him, those that come to him, come to this living stone, are now part of his house, are part of his household. That And now we have this older brother that takes care of us, this father that makes sure no ultimate harm comes to us, uh, that we are cared for and loved and now we're heirs with him, that the reward that Christ deserves now he gives to us that we do not deserve and yet still receive. And then it talks about... It talks about how in this the spiritual house that we're holy priesthood. And so kind of when we come to that, we need to make sure we know what it means uh, to be a priest. Because um, we, we all have different ideas depending on our background uh, of what a priest is. Um, so just to kind of define a priest, a priest is someone that's set apart to devote their lives to God, to serve Him and then also to be a mediator of his presence to others. Um, And so if we think back to the Old Testament, the the Levites were set apart. They didn't have to work or farm or till the land. Instead, their job was to serve him, serve him in the tabernacle and eventually the temple, uh, to take the sacrifices that people would offer and bring those to the altar. But then also, uh, the job was also to teach the people to to be God's presence for them. Um, that they would point the people, or they were supposed to point him, point them to God, to to the covenant that He had made with His people. Or even further back to the Levitical than the Levitical priesthood, we we have Melchizedek, um, who Abraham wins this big battle. And so uh, this, this king of Salem, uh, who's also a priest, he comes and Abraham brings the tithe to this priest. Uh, and, and so who the priests are, they are God's representatives. They are those that devote their entire lives to serving God and to pointing others to him. And so if we're, we're a holy priesthood, Holy, again, it means set apart. And so we are set apart to serve God. It talks about then we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God because Jesus has fully paid the debt of our sin. That there aren't any more animal sacrifices that we have to offer to just cover our blood, and then offer it again, and offer it again, and offer it again. Instead, he offered this one-time sacrifice, and he himself is the high priest, and we ourselves are under him. Um, And so when it talks about offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, it's our entire lives. Um, Romans talks about how we are to be living sacrifices. and it's building off of kind of, our original purpose in the garden. When God made mankind, he told them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. That we're to fill the earth with God's presence, with image bearers of God. Those that point others to him. And if we think about that image of God and remember when these Pharisees come up to Jesus and, and they test him. They, they, they ask him, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And he tells them to, to take out a coin and look at it and ask whose image is on it. And they look at it and say, it's Caesar's. And he, say, and he says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but then give unto God what is God's. Because we are in the image of God. And so To offer spiritual sacrifices is to devote our entire lives to God. That means every decision we make should be in conjunction with what he says in his word. That it should be to glorify him. How we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we speak of others and to others. That it should be all for God's glory to to devote our entire lives to him. But also about this priesthood, not only is it holy, Peter goes on and says it's royal. um, That because he's the king of kings and now he's our brother. He's our older brother and now we're, we're with him. We reign with him. That Again, going back to that original mandate in the garden where mankind was supposed to keep and protect the garden and also rule over and have dominion over all the different beasts and birds and fish and plants that that now we can actually reign with him. We can have dominion that doesn't just take and corrupt everything for our but instead it, it it's protecting it's looking for the best of everything around us and then also as a part of this he says we get honor instead of shame that if we're in Christ if we come to Christ we're united with him and because of that we receive honor instead of shame that Jesus takes all the condemnation and shame for us and now he looks at us and he rewards us as we follow him. He, he gives us crowns or wreaths, uh, depending on the verse you're looking at. But ultimately, if we follow after him, he looks at us and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That God looks at us and is proud of us. Of what Christ has done. That he takes our shame and instead gives us honor. Now, now going down to verse 9 and 10, where kind of this whole list is laid out, we see that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. That when it talks about this, this chosen race or holy nation, that Peter is building off of what God told Israel, that that they were chosen, that they would be God's holy nation, that through them, all the other nations of the world would be blessed. That now Peter's saying that those in Christ are now united into the people of God, are grafted in, and now it's not just the Israelites, but it's every tribe, tongue, nation, background, culture, anyone who comes to Christ are now part of the people of God. That this this chosen race of God isn't a certain kind of people, it's a new kind, it's a new humanity that's made up of all kinds and different kinds of people. Um, And we're a holy nation. uh, That if we're in Christ, if we're united with him, he's our king. That ultimately, even if whatever nation we're in, like back here, they were in the Roman Empire. Um, and Peter goes on and says, hey, even though we're, we have a new king, we still honor the emperor. Um, but even if the Roman Empire should fall, that doesn't mean we're lost or without a nation. Instead, we're part of the kingdom of God. That... When different rulers come and persecute us as Nero eventually did to these people and different rulers throughout history come and kill those that don't deserve it that punish those who do good instead of punishing those that do evil. That that ultimately our allegiance lies with the king of kings, not with a human ruler that's imperfect. That God gets our allegiance above all else. Um, And so, as we follow him, we we become part of his kingdom, but he scatters us to be ambassadors throughout the world. And so, we seek the good of whatever nation we're part of, knowing that God, as it says in Acts, he determines the time and boundaries of all these nations in order that they may come to him. And so, he scatters us and sends us out to lead others to his kingdom. And then he says that we're God's own possession, that we're a people for God's own possession, that God so cares about us and so loves us that we are like a jewel in his hand, that if you think of like the best thing possible in the world that maybe your heart desires even though it shouldn't, uh, whether it's like some elaborate fancy jewel that you hold up to the light and you turn it and it has all these different colors and you turn it slightly and you see something else that's beautiful. That we're like that in his hands. That that we are his own possession that is precious to him. And that once we were far off but now we're his. Once we were not a people, but now we're God's people. Once we had not received mercy but now we've received mercy because we're united with him. Because when we come to Christ, we're united with him. And then he also says that we were in darkness, but now we're in this marvelous light. That we were once part of the kingdom of darkness, but now we are part of the kingdom of light. That once we were blind and dead, but now we can see and we have life. And so, all of this is part of just kind of hammering home the point that that even when we feel rejected by the world as the original audience of this letter did, that because they're in Christ, because they came to Christ, they're united with him. and They're not rejected. That they are holy and precious, God's own people. And so as he goes on and tells them this. It's not just to make them feel good about themselves, but it should lead us to action as well. And so, kind of already mentioned that part of this is to offer spiritual sacrifices, to devote our entire lives to God, to to bear out the image of God as we were originally made to do, but that we failed to do that now those in Christ are given the spirit, are given a new heart, and now we can actually live that out. And so, it's again building off of that that first great command to love our God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, that to offer spiritual sacrifices to devote our lives to God, to make every decision for his glory. That When we're faced with some difficult circumstance, that we go into it saying, not how can I make this good for myself, but how can I use this to glorify God? And then the second one is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light that's building off of that that's second greatest commandment, uh, to, to love others as Christ loved us. And so we, we proclaim him that we go out into the world and with both our words and our good deeds, we talk about the goodness of God, that, that once we were far off and we were dead and deserving of death, but now God has given us life. And so we call others to follow the king that we follow, to follow the king that saved us, that ransomed us with his own blood. And who was raised to life so that we could be raised with him. And as we, we think about our lives, we're going to come up short time and a time and again. But, but over time, God is he's working us He's washing us with the blood of Christ, that He's preparing us. If we go back to chapter one, that and uh, verse kind of six through seven, that that the trials of this life are are making our faith, are testing it, and making it glorious to bring honor when Christ is revealed, and so. We're going to face different trials. We're going to fail at times, but but we have an advocate for us that that already fully paid for our failures, and so he he comes alongside us and picks us back up and tells us once again to follow him. And when we think about all of this, it's it's not just us individually, but it's. Peter's writing to to the church, to to this people of God. And so when we think about living this out, we need to live it out with one another. Um, That we aren't just lone rangers, even though we're exiles here on this earth. We're exiled with other brothers and sisters that are united into Christ with us. That because we're united with Christ, that... Any difference between one another, it just pales into comparison because we're united with Christ. So that takes supremacy. And so when we think about the church, the church as a whole, and then, then we think about connection and how we're being adopted into them, that, that there's, going to be, there's going to be changes that come, but ultimately if we're going back to these truths of how we should live, they bring us back to the mission that has kind of failed to still be fervent here. That's um, failed to be fervent in my life as well. That kind of bring us back to the, these ancient truths of the gospel, of what it means to follow Christ and to be a missionary or an ambassador and to be part of the family of God, that it's meant to remind us of this truth, of this gospel. So there's going to be hard, difficult things that are going to come up. And when, when, when that happens and it will, we need to remember the truth of the gospel, that we're doing this For the purpose of bringing glory to God, of devoting our lives to Him and proclaiming His excellencies wherever we go. And so, as we kind of wrap up here, kind of the big idea to take with you then is something I've said over and over again that if we've come to Christ, we're united with Him. We're united with Him in both His life and His death and His resurrection. That everything is fully paid for, and now we're chosen and precious in his sight. And so when we feel dejected because we've been rejected by the world, that we come back to here and know that we're chosen and precious to God. Let's pray. God help us to see these truths. Help us to know even more clearly the bounds and height and depth of your love for us. God, let let that shape us and form us um, as you wash us in your blood of your Son. God, let that transform our entire lives, that, that we would make every decision in light of you of how to bring you glory, how to proclaim your excellence how to be your ambassadors of being your holy and royal priests of this new nation, of this new humanity here on this earth. Help us to put aside our own selfish desires and instead follow the king and his desires. So God, we ask that your spirit would be at work within us because we can't do that by ourselves. We need you to constantly renew us and remind us. So God, we ask your Spirit to be poured out in even greater measure each and every day in us. And God, help us to point each other again and again back to the truth of the gospel. In your Son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.